And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome again to The Sustainability Story. I'm Matt Orsog, Senior Director of Capital Markets Policy at CFA Institute, and our guest today is Gabriel Toomey. Gabriel's a charter holder, and he's the head of plastics program and director of financial markets at Planet Tracker. Gabriel, it's great to have you. Thank you, Matt, for the invitation, and thank you to CFA Institute for inviting me also. It's a real pleasure. Uh, being part of a member of the Institute and a long-term volunteer, it's a real honor also just to be part of this education and communication process we're part of around sustainability and sustainable finance. A lot's going on. COP26 is happening these two weeks. There's a lot of hyperbole. There's a lot of communication. And today we're going to talk about the nuts and bolts of the plastics industry, which our audience may not realize is in every single one of their portfolios. Plastics are in every sector of the economy, and there's hundreds of thousands of plastic products out there. And that's my teaser. <laughs> yeah, give us a little background about you know yourself, where you, how you got to be where you are now, uh, how you came to Planet Tracker, and a little bit about Planet Tracker and what you guys do there. Okay. About almost 20 years ago, I was at Wells Fargo working in correspondent banking, and which is you know servicing bank clients. And I was reading about climate change and biodiversity and other environmental social governance risk issues. I drew three circles. One was capital markets. One was uh, natural resources science. The third was cities. I said, I want to be the technical expert at the intersection of these three. One got graduate certificate, graduate degrees from University of Michigan, certificates along the way. And I've been working on ESG integration and innovation for about 15 years. For Planet Tracker, Planet Tracker's goal is to help align capital markets within planetary boundaries, which is a subset of E, or environment within environmental social governance. And now planetary boundaries, we may not think much of, or may not have heard that phrase, and that's very fair, of course. What planetary boundaries refer to is the Earth systems uh, that surround and blanket the Earth and protect the Earth from uh, sort of broader, larger systemic changes or systemic influences. We know them as climate change. We know uh, planetary boundaries as biodiversity risk and loss or water quality and quantity issues or uh, today uh, chemical dispersion. So in, in, in some, of, you know, some of the information you sent me on this and some of the background reading you had me do, uh, I've in the past we've had our guests, you know, try to frame the conversation in one fact or, or one number uh, that kind of frames things for people. And going through what you sent me, I found myself I found too many. You know, just the you know the 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 the, the time that the plastic bottle in your hand spends in a landfill and how long that takes to break down uh, and all those things. But if there are one or two facts that kind of help frame this conversation for you know our, our members and investors who are listening to this about the plastics industry, and if there's more than two, that's fine. But what are, what are some of those you know facts and figures that kind of help frame the broader picture in plastics? Well, the first number is three. <laughs> That's a pretty easy number for us to remember. There are three key nodes in plastics production. First, upstream petrochemicals, and then that includes basic, that includes cracking, uh, that includes uh, basic chemicals, intermediates, and resins. Then you have plastics containers and packaging as the second node. And the third node is fast-moving consumer goods, which then disperse into waste management. This, the, the next number is one. Plastics are in every sector of the economy. 
polyvinyl chloride is a key component in the in the housing industry. Acrylene butylene styrene is a key component in the electronics industry and also the auto industry. The next number is 130 million. So we've gone from three to one to 130 million. <laughs> so it's estimated that there was 130 million metric tons of single-use plastic produced and used globally in 2019. And about 20% of that ends up in the air, in the light, as waste on land or at sea. And then we look at financially, the next number is going to be either 20 or 30, depending how we segment upstream. They're either 20 key players that are public and privately held or 30 that are publicly traded. Then there are 80 companies who are in the plastic containers and packaging sector and 10 to 20 key companies downstream the fast moving consumer goods. So pretty soon we take this global problem where we can look at a single company like Sealed Air has over 200,000 plastics products. That's too complicated to address. Or we can look at, there are over 30 different families of plastics, whether thermoplastics or thermoset plastics. That's not gonna work. But we can, at a stepwise fashion, look at these three nodes, upstream petrochemical and resin production, midstream plastic containers and packaging, and downstream fast-moving consumer goods, and start to let, understand that there are financial risks and opportunities right now that are material to the portfolio managers that are members of the CF Institute, the research analysts, the credit analysts, and others in their mainstream day-to-day -day jobs. That's a great, that's, that offers me a great transition into the, the rest of what we want to talk about. And just to help set that scene, uh, still kind of at the broad level, I want to talk about kind of where, where we've come from, where we are and where you think we're going in plastics, the plastics industries are, you know, you say, you know, as, as everybody knows now, you know, plastics are in every, every industry and they're, they're just a, such a huge part of our life to the point that we take them for granted. In a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, uh, but where have we, where have we been, where are we, and where are we going uh, in plastics? And you know, I think there's, you know, people are so we're talking right in the middle of COP26, and there and there's a lot of other e issues such as water or biodiversity that people are concerned with as well. But I think plastics is one that I've heard more and more of in the past couple of years, you know, you've been dedicating your, yourself to it for, for decades. So you're well-placed to let our, our investor member, you know, our members and investors know kind of where are things headed in plastics and investment? So first of all, it's a, well, it's a great question. First of all, plastics are a neutral product. Sometimes a really good product and sometimes a bad product often depends on the production, the use and the waste management. So I use plastic every day. And that's, I'm fine with that. It's how it's produced or how I use it or how I, how I dispose of it. It's that systems perspective where the innovation in the capital markets is most interesting. First of all, though, let's define plastic. That's the very first thing one always must ask when they have a conversation about plastic. And today we'll say plastic is a summary term for a man-made or human-made synthetic polymer. That's it. It's a summary term because there's so many different types of plastic out there and each individual, each company, each time it's mentioned in the press, each time it's mentioned in analyst report, my first question is what are they referring to? For example, sometimes someone will say plastic and they're only referring to window frames and doors such as polyvinyl chloride, <laughs> which is a completely different production process and completely different use case and a completely different waste management set of issues, all completely different companies than say high density polyethylene, which is like wrap or PET, which can either be used in textiles or in bottles. And so we have to be careful on the definition. 
Now, where we started is the sec the industry of plastics production is sits inside chemical engineering in the material sector. And as the material sector has grown since 1950, their products they produce have grown too. And one of those plastics is plastic. One of those products is plastic, right? And so we've gone from maybe a million tons of production in the 1950s on an annual basis now to 350, 400 million tons a year. So we can't separate the economic growth and uh, that we've had over the last 60, 70 years with plastic production. But what we can do now is understand the waste management issues on the, on the waste side and on the toxic chemical release issues that occur during production and use to better and more efficiently streamline these supply chains. So an inefficient supply chain is an antagonist, while on the other hand, an efficient supply chain is a protagonist with the definition that efficient means you know, zero or negative environmental social governance impacts and a decrease in wasted capital. So, um, yeah, so where are we going? Right now, we're at a key moment in industry. There are any number of solutions that are occurring, that are being presented along at the production space, at the use and waste management. And we need to, first of all, have corporations publish their plastic footprint. Or if they do not want to publish it, they can at least put just understand their plastic footprint internally and put a shadow price on plastics production and use and waste management costs when they start analyzing how they want to strategically develop over the next five to 10 years. Now, is that something, just interrupt for, to jump, to jump in. Mm -hmm. Is that something we're seeing anywhere? Uh, you know, are there best practices of companies that do that or industries that do that better than others that are, that are reporting that, that kind of plastics footprint that you're, you're asking for? Industries globally are not yet at scale reporting in plastic footprint. Now within a plastic footprint, one would have, you know, scope one, two, and three greenhouse gas emissions, of which a mitigation tool could be um, alternative feedstocks, could be carbon capture and storage, but each of those have significant issues that need to be resolved and assessed and understood from a risk management perspective before moving forward with those. Uh, Dow recently made a, a large announcement that they were going to invest in a ethane cracker in Alberta. And that's, they're going to move towards carbon neutrality. The basis of that is using CCS. Right. Carbon capture and storage. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Now, we also have the concern around chemical recycling. So we need to understand, first of all, that the idea, the recycling, the triangle with the flow arrows moving in, you know, both in, in uh, cyclical and countercyclical direction that we interpret as recycling was a marketing tool developed in the 1980s. And in particular, when it was used for plastic, the industry itself and the recyclers were not consulted. <laughs> so I remember in the 1980s, recycling my plastic. Now I know in hindsight that that plastic, of course, was never recycled because the recyclers were not consulted. And just because one puts an arrow uh, these three three arrows on a, on a package doesn't mean that that product is recyclable. It's a complete disconnect. This, this is why uh, Governor Newsom in California recently signed a law, I think it was October 25, requiring the fair use and accurate use of recycling diagram and all packaging produced and used in California. This may seem, seem as an esoteric issue, except it's covered by the Federal Trade Commission and green labeling, and Amazon in 2018 was sued for X millions of dollars and had to settle out of, uh, with, with the Attorney General of the State of California over their use and mislabeling of the recycling icon. So we have to understand that there is, in some cases, downcycling. Now, it's a bit technical. This is why with plastic, we 
often end up in the weeds, but we'll come right back out. So don't hang up if you're listening. <laughs> it's going to get a lot more interesting. What I'm saying is that. Yeah. What is downcycling? But we yeah. have. Yeah. We have downcycling. So the best case scenario um, or one of the case scenarios is if we look at plastic bottles, which we all often recycle. They can be recycled three to four times at most into another plastic bottle. Because what happens at each time one has to heat the polymer, which is a lot of, is a, it, it, that heating process itself has a lot of GHG emissions and toxic chemical releases. And when they heat the polymer, the polymer itself degrades. It declines in, in its quality. And that's just the fundamental chemistry of the universe, right? And um, so that break point can go from 42% to 1% in, th in three to five heating cycles or reuse cycles. So what that means is the PET bottle is downgraded to lower quality PET bottles. And at some point, we'll just fall apart and become a park bench, ultimately from a product perspective. So we don't have 100% recycling that's across industry. There are some very specific products where that happens, but not that's rare. So industry has said, well, can we boil trash basically in chemical recycling or use anaerobic processes or other processes and return it to the, go from the polymer to the monomer to the single carbon atom. And remember, plastic is a polymer. It's multiple carbon atoms in a row. Right. I know this is technically, we have yeah. to get this. Yeah, well, it's, it's just, it's, but it's just chemistry when you get down to it. it is, that's all it is. It's a simple chemistry. And, um, and what happens is we can do that, but then what happens when it ends up with oil? And that oil is called, and that process that's, that dominates the market is called paralysis. So that oil can be put into a two-stroke engine, like a, like a moped or a motorcycle. Or it can be then boiled and heated and formed again a second time and returned to a plastic product. Right. To now, start the cycle again if, if we had the ability yeah. and the investment to do those things. I mean, but remember, each time we do that heating and cooling, heating and cooling, it degrades the product. So there, from a where the industry is at right now, um, there will be a lot more interest in reuse and refill and deposit return schemes going forward. Now, this is when we think about like uh, related to the most CFA literature that we have studied for you know, and worked in with our careers and exams. Think about the mosaic theory. Like where I live in, in Europe, we have uh, Austria is pursuing a deposit return scheme mechanism and a refill and reuse mechanism. That means they're going to require a certain percentage initially 25% of, of categories of beverages to be able to reuse that bottle, right? Well, that there's a lot of money to be made in that. And there are companies who, who have made a lot of money doing reuse and refill. Um, you know, I think of bottlers in Latin America have done this for decades. So, where we're seeing industry go is on the one hand, upstream can we solve the GHG emissions around production? Is it mechan doing mechanical recycling, chemical recycling? Can we do an, do we need, we need to have an absolute plastics use number? We also need to um, include in that an understanding that in the production of the chemicals and not if one produces a, let's say, a, a batch of chemicals that are used in the production process, and I won't bore the audience with the names of the chemicals, it doesn't mean that all those chemicals go to plastics. Some might go to fertilizers, some might go to you know, additives, they might go to coatings, they'll go to other sectors of the, of the, of, of the, um, uh, the uh, other sectors of the material sector, other interesting material sector. That production process itself has a significant amount of toxic chemical releases, which is starting to increasingly get a lot of press because the back is causing high levels of cancer in many cases for background communities. 
And these are communities in the, in the, um, that we often will use the phrase environmental justice impacted communities, which often are uh, communities of color or, di or, or disadvantaged communities. Now, the key thing to understand is that these communities are global and they're all over the world. It's not simply Cancer Alley, which is the name of one of the, one of the regions from Baton Rouge to New Orleans, where they have background cancer rates in some instance, instances of 50 times U.S. national uh, uh, levels. And that's according to the U.S. government. Um, we have a, a equivalence of Cancer Alley, of course, in New York City, right across. If one just looks over at the, 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 the chemical complex across the World Trade Center in New Jersey, there you go. You have Cancer Alleys. Um, in, uh, in Belgium and Netherlands and, and North Rhine-Westphalia and, and, and Germany, where you have the trilateral chemical region, and you have other cancer alleys throughout the world. And so what happens is that we are just starting to understand that while we need and we want to use plastic, we need to use plastic products that are much more recyclable. I mean, uh, um, uh, 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 we need to approach the use of plastic products from a full um a, a circular economy perspective that includes reuse and refill and reduce the use of absolute amount of plastic, but the production of plastic itself is creating health risks for all of us. Um, in the most extreme, there are now children who are being born with plastic or chemicals in their blood. Um, uh, uh, and I can share literature with someone if they have questions, just please email me. Um, of course, that's not all children, that just we do have cases of that. So going forward, it's not possible for us to solve climate change or so look at the broader sort of uh, cancer rates and other disease incidences around the world and not solve the plastic production um, dilemma. But there's a lot of opportunity there for uh, smart investors to make quite a bit of money by investing in better technologies than others. Well, that leads me into the, the report you guys, you wrote, well, you were the main author of uh, Unwrapping Investor Risk in the Global Plastic Containers and pa Packaging Sector that came out earlier this year. We're, we're talking late 2021. You know, some people may listen to this later. Uh, but in March 2021, that report came out. Uh, and I thought it was fascinating just getting a, a, a better understanding of the the concentration of the companies that make the plastic containers we use every every day uh, and products we use every day and what are the risks and opportunities around that uh, around that sector and that industry so just if you could just kind of summarize that report and what you guys found what we found was over 80 companies that are publicly traded dominate the plastic containers and packaging sector so let me define, of course, every time I say plastic, what am I referring to? In this case, plastic was defined using um, industry classification system sub-industries that are available on Bloomberg. So I, as a research analyst, I wanted to have my work, first of all, be replicable by others. And I wanted to use a data source that is, or a data aggregator that is industry standard. So I use Bloomberg. Now, these companies are responsible for not only looking at publicly traded revenue, about 90% of the revenue in that industry. Now, what we found was that while some of these companies like Amcor and Sealed Air are well known, and I do want to pause and say that we at Planet Trucker and me in particular work quite a bit with industry. So tomorrow, uh, <laughs> In November of 2021, the, the timestamp, I am actually doing a podcast with Amcor's leadership on sustainable plastics. Yeah, yeah. So what we found is that on the one hand, these names are not well known. Now they hide between upstream petrochemical giants like an Exxon or the or, um, in the integrated oil sector or companies in, in the basic and diversified chemicals sector like Dow Chemical. And then there's these, these packs of plastic containers and packaging companies that most people haven't heard of. And then they sell or provide packaging for fast moving consumer goods companies, such as a Nestle, a Unilever, that then get distributed and sold at a Walmart or at a Target. And then they get disposed of 
uh, through like uh, with waste management or Veolia as a service provider. The, um, there were very few companies when we wrote the paper that were actively engaged in working, who had actively published their sustainable plastic strategy. Now there's been quite a bit of change in the last six, seven months, but how do we know this? So we wanted the corporate filings screen on Bloomberg and you know, did keyword searches for no link the sustainability linked terms for plastic, you know, oceans, biodiversity, extended producer responsibility, deposit return schemes, and looked at these companies' filings. It's like uh, 11,000 filings, I think it was, over the last 10 years, and there just isn't any data. I mean, any, any um, uh, pardon me, the, there was data, it's that the results were mostly null. And so the second thing to look at is that then we looked at the capital stack for these companies. On the equity side, of course, it's going to be BlackRock, it's going to be Vanguard, Capital Group. No surprises there, well, large equity investors, whether from active or passive funds. Putting that aside, what was most interesting to me is that 70% of the capital on the debt side is rolling over in the, for this, in, this, in this sector in the next five years. And at the time that we wrote this and it went to press, there was, only, there was a, only one green or sustainability linked, green bond or sustainability linked loan that had been issued. Since then, there's been a couple more, right? Uh, so of the 500 plus debt and loan issuances that we looked at, the majority that were rolling over or maturing in the next by 2025, you know, one or two at that time that we published the paper, uh, were green or ESG linked. So in other words, this is a huge opportunity to retool the industry towards sustainable production. That then means what is sustainable? Per we have to define sustainable production. <laughs> of course, what are we referring to, right? You know, so the, the chemicals industry in Europe uh, last week or the week before had a really interesting paper that came out. And it was a, it was a two, it was a, no, it was last week. It was a five day conference. And I attended much of it remote. And this, the, the thesis is that they are launching what they call safe and sustainable by design chemistry. They want chemistry to do no, to do no harm. So we don't have excess benzene and dioxins or PFAS being leached into the environment, you know, uh, whether into the water, air or land. They want the products that the industry produces in Europe to be able to be reused and refilled, and they want to extend the lifetime of these products. There are, there are chemicals that we can apply, for example, to plastic, which we know is a polymer that will strengthen plastic over time, or what you might call heal it. So you can use it for a much longer period of time, right? So you can extend the lifetime of plastics. They're supporting the build out of deposit return schemes in Europe. And they're taking ownership of extended producer responsibility. Very interesting. Now, why would the chemicals industry of Europe pursue this angle? Because they too are looking at this debt is revolving over. They too are, know that most of the names are not well known. They too see that we have many different policies that are being enacted, whether in California or in the EU or in China on plastics use. Um, plastics production, use, or waste. And over, what's happened in the EU is that there's been a significant increase in patents around plastics production towards sustainability and use in the last 10 years. In fact, the EU now is the, is the global leader on patents around sustainable plastics, which is, you know... If we look at the further to big scale, from 1998 to 2019, so basically the last 20 years, the EU, and this is the EU 27, saw its position from a producer 
in, uh, of, of plastics decline by, um, go from like number one in the world to number three. Go from about 27% about market share to about 14% at most right now. Other hand, China has gone from about 10% to 40% of market share. As plastics production in China is built into its five-year plan, because the Chinese government wants to have plastic self-sufficiency, what they call uh, like uh, chemistry self-sufficiency. What that has meant is that significant amount of facilities in Europe, depending how we measure it, could uh, the mapping we've done in ArcGIS is about 570 facilities. So it's a very large amount of facilities. And we're talking from, uh, what does this mean from a capital markets perspective? One of the very large uh, economy-wide investors has a position that's $127 billion in only just in those facilities alone. So think of if you're a portfolio manager, you may not think of plastics in your portfolio, but one of these very large investors that I mentioned earlier has $127 billion exposure to these 500 plus facilities. The utilization rate on these facilities is declining. So they're increasingly becoming more concentrated. They're not being utilized as much as they can be. And from a financial analyst perspective, most of these, many of these facilities have been written, uh, uh, they've been, they've been fully depreciated. They've been around for 30, 40 years. The equipment in them changes over time, but the facility is not on, not, has been depreciated. So there's a real, there's a real opportunity for the Dow Chemicals, Lion Delta Cells, and other, um, companies in the basic and, um, diversified chemical sector and the companies they service in the plastic container packaging sector, like Amcor, Sealed Air, um, Hutamaki, Gale, many others, to start to refurbish these facilities towards sustainability. We have the technical know-how. The chemicals industry wants this. There's policy demand happening. There's consumer behavior changes in demand. And the fast-moving consumer goods companies want to make the changes too. Nestle, as some of us may on the call, on the podcast may be aware of, recently, I think it was two years ago, said that they would spend up to two billion Swiss franc for sustainable plastics by 2025. So we have a price signal. So yeah. that gets me to where you know we sit. Most of the people you know listening to this podcast are investors. And, you know, are investors getting, you know, the data, you know, this is a, this is a, an ESG question all the time. You know, do we get the, do we have the data, the disclosures that we need to do, you know, the work of finance efficiently allocating that capital around investment in the plastics industry? Uh, is that data there? Is, you know, what's, what's missing? Uh, are there big gaps that investors, you know, aren't getting? And, uh, and, and is there anything, you know, that, that they can do around that? Uh, and what's the kind of level of engagement around plastics with investors? The level of engagement is nascent and, and spotty at best. Yeah. And that's not a critique. I'm going to be very careful. It's not a critique of investors. It's simply, remember, plastic, going back to the definition, is a, is a, summary term, so a term which is like a bucket we can put everything into, just call it plastic, right, of polymers. And it can be in the health industry, it can be in the automotive industry, it can be aviation. Pretty soon it's once one steps back, you're like, it's in every sector of the economy, okay? So which analyst covers plastics at investment, you know, for investors is complicated because it's, it should be. In theory, every analyst who's covered has sector coverage would have some plastic exposure. Yet that's a diffusion of knowledge. And it's very difficult to manage a team and, and have an overarching policy there. Now, from an ESG perspective, that's from an, that's from like a credit analyst or an investment analyst perspective. From an ESG perspective, we have many few, many fewer ESG analysts with many more names. You know, an active manager might cover 50 names and they have 250 in their, in, in, in their, um, in their, in their, in their, uh, sort of investment pool that they might pull from. An ESG analyst might have 2000 names. 
So suddenly you're dealing with a scale issue of 2,000 names or 500 names that an ESG analyst has, and they have to cover a, a product set that conservatively would be at least 200,000 to 500,000 products around the world. So, okay, what are, how are we going to solve this, right? And what we're realizing, there are tools around disclosure that are slightly different than, say, climate change and others that really help, right? So talking to companies such, this is what like Rockefeller Capital Management does, directly talks to companies and inquires about what is their transition plan to sustainable plastics? And in that, how are they, how are they defining sustainable? How are they defining plastics? So it comes a conversation. We have, the sector is starting to make commitments to carbon neutrality, particularly on the petrochemical side, all the way upstream. Now, then we have to define, uh, when they say carbon neutrality, is that scope one, scope one and two, scope one, two and three? Is it all GHG gases or is it only, you know, uh, uh, you know, carbon dioxide itself? There's definition issues. And then there's the timing. Is it by 2030? Is it by 2050? Now, then we, on, on the design stage, which is the next stage, once we have the, the monomers and the polymers and we can design something with them, it's this, material, this fungible material, we can make something with it. We have the safe and sustainable by design commitments that are being um, put together, uh, with like the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, CFIC, um, and many other leaders in the EU. There are also similar commitments being made in China, which is a key production area, and also in the Gulf. Um, now, it's important also to understand that much of the language we communicate, much of the language we use to communicate about investing, and in particular around environmental social governance, is often English. And there's simply a mechanical issue where there are significant amounts of innovations occurring in, com in communities that do not use English as their primary language. Or, as in the case in Japan, publishing in English an e a sustainable report is, is incredibly expensive. Just like if I'm at an asset manager and I make a public statement, I have to go through compliance. Imagine we have to, we have a public statement, a sustainability report. It's in Japanese. We then have to translate that. And then it has to be reviewed and edited by compliance and legal in English right. Right. to then be published for the five analysts that might use it. So there are, <laughs> there, there are economies that we need to think about and we consider here. So um, then on the debt side, that's on the equity side. So company, mm -hmm. asking companies that have, to summarize, have, asking companies that have a, a, a carbon neutrality commitment and what is their, uh, what is their um, policy commitment to sustainable plastics and defining sustainable plastics. And within that, you have the subsets of toxic chemical releases um, and on the upstream, which include also impacts on water. You have the use issues and the waste issues end up with plastics going into the ocean, which we're all probably quite familiar with. On the design step, which is the next stage, the plastic containers and packaging, these companies need to step forward and say, okay, as opposed to redesigning a, a bottle which they off, they'll, they'll, they'll redesign a bottle for Nestle or for Coca-Cola for someone. And that's still at a product by product basis. They need to step back. And this is what I'm talking to Am, the Amcor and I are talking about tomorrow. What's the nature of packaging look like? Or more broadly, what's the nature of plastics look like in the next five to 10 years so that we can solve plastics from a design perspective? Yeah, what does packaging look like? How do we create solutions? Now, there are often unintended roadblocks. Look at high density, high density um, polyethylene. It's used in milk containers in the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is no longer part of the EU. Now we have the EU 27. Previously, high density polyethylene was imported into the EU from the UK as a key feedstock for recycled, recycled feedstocks. Now they no longer do that, and so you can't import it. <laughs> Separately, food-grade polyethylene 
So high density, uh, low density, and linear low density, food grade polyethylene often has a barrier to entry that it must be 95% food grade to then be recycled into, 90, into food grade polyethylene and reused again. No one is separating the trash and saying, this is, I'm putting all the food grade polyethylene into this bucket and <laughs> your compost into that bucket and your paper into this bucket. And no one's doing that. So we have regulatory hurdles uh, that are often in the minutia that could really open up markets. Well, the, that gets me to a question I want to get to is, you know, we've talked a little bit about what companies are doing, what investors can do, some of the information uh, they can get. But from, you know, a policy side of things, regulation side of things, you know, the, the incentives that are going to drive changes in how plastic is used will come, you know, largely from policy. You know, what can policy make, I guess, in two tracks, you know, what can policymakers do and what can we as consumers do uh, to address, you know, the, the plastics problem uh, and make it more, make that plastics economy more circular? Yeah. Well, use the U.S. as an example. First of all, the policy actions are very simple that can be acted upon, but to get them to be acted is what is complicated. So, you know, um, requiring reuse and refill an extended lifetime, like we're doing here in Austria and in the EU, I live in Austria, or increasing, you know, enacting deposit return schemes and extended proofs of responsibility, which we have in, in, in the state of Maine, in California, yet other places are pushing back against that in the state level in the United States, but we have in some of the countries in the EU, creating a safe, safe list of key ingredients. Remember, plastic includes over hundreds of thousands of ingredients, and it is what we use in packaging and containers in our material built lifestyle. Okay. Well, I can replace plastic with paper or aluminum or other key, think of them as ingredients. If we imagine policymakers said, these 15 key ingredients, when the life cycle analysis, which is the input output and the total impact from production, use, and waste, right? You know, with aluminum, steel, paper, cardboard, timber, not timber, um, but um, uh, in the polyethylene um, or ethylene and propylene met a set of criteria and they were green listed, then you'd have a much simpler ability to start to make sustainability commitments because I would know that the commodity that I'm using is, 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 has a much lower life cycle analysis impact from production, use, and waste than, than it might be otherwise. That's, that's a further field. That's not, that'll take you no know, significant push. But let's talk specifically about the U.S. What we have, if people are um, familiar with this concept, we have a many-to-many -many issue, which is a data science phrase. In the U.S., you have 88,004, um, 88, I think, cities and 3,320 counties. And every single one has its own recycling policy. Right? And that's if those that's before if the policies actually are acted upon accurately as it's stated in the policy, which is a whole different conversation. Yeah. Because I put in recycling bin doesn't mean it's recycled. Oftentimes it does, but there's questions there. So how do we go? And then we have the 50 states and the, you know, the District of Columbia. We have our, you know, the territories and other affiliated um, um, uh, communities. And um, how do we come up and have an overarching single policy around deposit return scheme and extended producer responsibility that industry will accept? So suddenly we have to get, we have to have a Lionel Bissell and a Dow and others have to coalesce around a set of policies that would, that the ecologists and the activists, which we can call environmentalists, would agree upon for this very complex system and start to develop product that meets those standards. So I think where we might find some action happening is in the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives, there's been significant push on the break free from plastic legislation. In the Save Our Seas 2, 
bill, I think it's a form, that's not quite the name, but it's a Save Our Seas 2 bill, two, number two, that President Trump signed a legislation that also enacted policies that started pushing the U.S. industry as a whole towards sustainable plastics. What we are missing, the two things we're missing is we don't have a Tesla. We don't have a single company that has said, hey, I'm going to embrace all my production, move all my production towards sustainable plastics. I don't have to know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to try. And if they do that, suddenly that company goes from being in, in the, no, no one's ever heard of them to suddenly being a, a favorite on Wall Street as a sustainability uh, for sustainability investment. They'll get an equity kick on that, of course. And we don't have the debt markets actively pursuing green bonds and sustainability linked loans for the industry to retool. Yeah, that'll be interesting to watch. I mean, you said you know yourself that that's uh, after your report came out, that started to tick up. But that will be interesting to see if that is that. It, what is that trajectory? You know, is it just a slow? Is it a hockey stick or is it just a slow? You know, pl uh, plateau. Well, so plateau. Far, Matt, it's been really slow. Uh, we have, if we look, if we segment the upstream names into just the thirty publicly traded petrochemical names. There are maybe 13 or 14 out of 500 issuances that are green bonds or ESG linked. Indorama, the large PET plastic bottle manufacturer that's Thai, is a significant market cap, uh, maybe a couple billion. They announced a 10 billion bot of uh, sustainability linked bond yesterday. And it's, it's, it's to meet their 25% GHG emissions reduction target by 2030 and retool their facilities towards sustainability and improve and increase the use of recycled PET bottles in, the product, in their production. They're one of the largest producers in the United States. So that, that's, 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 that's an active activity that's happening. Um, Lot Chemical in Korea has made similar um, and uh, has had similar uh, commitments and green bond and, and uh, green um, ESG sustainable link loans. Um, slightly more downstream, Kutamaki, the large Finnish uh, conglomerate, has had a, has a 400 million euro issuance that came out. But it's it's not a lot. Do you see it? Do you see it staying that way, or or do you see? Would you imagine that? In, in coming years, that will increase, or is it? It's just it's just too early to tell. I think it will change because companies, first of all, are being pushed, or they're actively choosing to change their GHG or greenhouse gas emissions profile for scope one, two, and three. And so I think as a result, they will start to they'll go to the green bond markets, you no, know, where there's a greenium in many cases, and work to achieve and use the markets to, to retool their their facilities. We still do not have enough energy and innovation and excitement around packaging. I mean, fundamentally, what does packaging or brought more broadly plastic use look like in 2025 and 2030? How do we get people excited to say, hey, I can solve this? How can we go from a, you know, a multiple layered plastic satchel that has three or four different types of plastic in it? So it's very difficult to recycle. It's impossible to recycle to monolayer. So you can start to recycle it. How can we uh, go from develop truly biodegradable and even compostable products? That's exciting. There is movement with seaweed as a replacement for um, uh, in, in nylon in a ni for nylon. There is, but all the activities we see here are nascent. It's like a it's everybody's in their back in their garage. It's a ten-person company here, maybe sometimes a little bit bigger. 50-person company there, but they're all very small. But we're not seeing excitement around how what's packaging going to look like? Because if we can solve the packaging angle, that will create the demand. It'll push, pull through the throughput that's needed, and the companies upstream will change their, pol their policies more at scale. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, Gabriel, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I wish, you know, I wish we could talk for hours more on it, but... Uh, we have we have to give our listeners uh, some time off. 
<laughs> so, but, but before we leave, uh, I, I want, well, you always want to give uh, our listeners something more to chew on, you know, some homework, if you will, uh, to jump deeper into the issue, you know, cause we, they only have 30, 40 minutes with us. So what are some things, you know, I, I would tell them to, to go and dive into some of your work, uh, at planet tracker and what you've done. But if they want to jump further into this, this issue, uh, what are some resources they should hunt down? So to be, to make a bit of a joke or to be a bit cheeky, <laughs> I would ask our listeners to show me how plastics is not in their day-to-day job. Cause plastics are an economy wide issue, just like GHG emissions. And so there's a point of discovery there to realize, Oh, it's in my, if I'm a credit analyst or an investment analyst or I'm a portfolio manager, it's part of my day-to-day job. I have just haven't thought about it that way. So show me how it's not. If you can find that, that'd be great. Let me know. Now, for resources, PRI recently published a, uh, a guidance on how to work within the petrochemical, the plastics complex. It's good. As You So has done some good work. It's a U.S. NGO. Um, Planet Tracker, we're very proud of our work, and we work with all the partners that I've mentioned and I will mention. And I'm certainly available to help anybody. And so as our team, I frequently talk with BlackRock and Vanguard and others. So it's just, just email me, of course. We have many resources. If someone wants to know where the facilities are, the U.S. government and the European Environmental Agency have lots of data that are available and easily accessible. I can show people how to access that if they like. There are... Uh, Various scoring tools available, such as ChemScore, that could be of interest. We have on the legal regulatory angle, uh, interesting work done by Client Earth, which at sometimes is a participant and sometimes is an advocate with uh, industry. The EU chemistry, CFIC in the EU, has a very has done very good work on working with industry to mainstream sustainability within the plastics production complex in the EU. Their work is very good. Ellen MacArthur Foundation has done work on the circular economy. So, but if we step back, remember, the first thing is just to realize that plastic is in the plane, so it's an aviation. Plastic's in the car, it's an automotive. Plastic's in the building, so it's in, I know it's, it's in real estate. Plastic's in your computers, it's in, it's in electronics. Plastic's in medical devices, plastic's in packaging and food. So simply real, coming to that realization and simply asking the companies the most simple question, what is their pathway towards sustainable plastics and by what year? That's, I think that's a great, that's a great way to end this. Uh, it gives people a lot, a lot to, to think about and a, and a big question to, 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 to take away. Uh, so I want to thank you for your time, Gabrielle. Thanks a lot. Uh, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you, Matt. It's been a privilege and an honor. Take care.